Hey, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Kevin Nassif. Hello, I'm Jonathan Agnew. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Swing from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashirin and you're listening to Not the Foolish. Yes, you are indeed listening to our 550th show of Not The Footy Show. And uh, we've got a very special guest lined up for you, as we always do on Not The Footy Show. I'm Ashley Morrison. I'm John Lee. Well, John, first of all, congratulations on hanging in there with me for 550. Uh, How long has it been? 19 years. Far out. September next year will be the 20th anniversary. You're kidding. No. Wow. Yep. Uh, that's a bit staggering, actually. It is now. I mean, the, our guest on this show is, if you remember when we set the show up, there were sort of two premises behind it all those right. years ago. And one was, before it was trendy, we were actually going to try and give female athletes a little bit of airtime. Because if you go back 19 years ago, nobody was really giving them any airtime. That's true. Uh, the second thing was we were trying to give secondary sports or the minor sports more airtime, more publicity because they miss out because a lot of the media in this country is AFL focused, hence not the footy show. And, you know, they focus on the bigger sports like NRL, rugby union. And although we did feature those sports and we have featured those, the idea was to try and give the sort of second tier a bit of a, a voice. And that situation still exists. Hasn't changed a no, lot. No, it hasn't. But our, our guest on this show is a female who I've actually wanted on the show for a long time. She was ever the, the first ever um, Perth Glory coach for the women and was a woman and is a woman rather. <laughs> um, but what I was trying you to say there, sure now what I was trying to say there is so many of the coaches in women's football are men or certainly were at yeah, that yeah. time. Um, and it's Nicola Williams. She's from Western Australia. She's currently over in the UK. And. Just why you mentioned 550, 19 years, we do have to mention the running man. The running man? Oh, yes, Darren Harper. <laughs> Darren. Because uh, he was there from, he was there at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, Michael Fontaine, Clint Ford, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, Ryan Cope. Yeah. The wedding DJ, doing yeah. great things. He's doing great things, oh, yeah. Oh, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and and uh, Darren Harper, I see, just got voted the most popular uh, lecturer at Trinity College or University in Leeds. So congratulations, Darren. Yeah, well done. That's good. You were always popular over here. He was. Uh, not at 6PR, though. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> anyway, am I going to start us off? You go. Well, I think anyone who listens to our show when we were on the radio every week or since we've been in the podcast, I get a bit hot under the collar when it comes to governance. And one of the things, John, that, as you know, really annoys me is that we have all of these boards who give direction or are supposed to give direction to the state bodies or national bodies that they're meant to run. And I just question whether we actually they're actually following through on that. And first, I'm just going to touch on hockey because we had the announcement at the end of last year that the West Australian state government is going to commit $135 million to retain the high-performance hockey program in Perth and they're going to upgrade the hockey stadium at Curtin University. Now, you would think, having made that agreement, and one of the things it said in the documents there, if the bid is successful, it will be the first time in Australian history that the head office and high-performance program will work side by side. So that was meaning that the administration were going to move to Perth. Now, the question I've got is, if now that decision's been made, and you're employing people within Hockey Australia... Surely, knowing that you have to move here in a few years' time, you would start employing people in Perth. You wouldn't be employing them still in Melbourne. Because you're now going to have to say, oh, well, we've either got to offer them relocation, cover their relocation costs, suddenly it becomes very expensive. But the common sense thing would be, every time a position comes up, you fill it in hang, Western Australia. Hang on a sec. They've already announced that they're not going to do that. Well, they've said that. But I mean, I don't. After know, the bidding uh, process had been completed, I believe the administrators said that in the offices here. But has it been announced officially? No. And my understanding, the government here don't know anything about them saying they're not coming. Oh, okay. And I've been told that if that is the case, then there may it may put the whole thing in jeopardy. Oh, no wonder they're not telling anybody then. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so that's one of the things that kind of annoys me, and I sort of think. 
you know, if you're going to do this and you're going to follow this process and you really want this and you asked all the states to go through this process and you presumably found what was the best option, then you must go with it and you must plan accordingly over the coming years. So that, you think so? Yeah. And, I mean, just linked to that as well, actually, on, on the sport of hockey. <laughs> uh, do you remember we had all the toxic hockey roots yeah. a few years ago and they paid for a... Would that be toxic femininity? I'm not commenting on that. But if you remember, it's commissioned by the Sport Australia and the Australian Institute of Sport. And again, linked to this, Section 9, it says that the high-performance director be co-located with the program to provide the best opportunity to create the positive and consistent relationships with staff, athletes, and other stakeholders, and to contribute to the on- and off-field objectives of the high-performance program, especially culture change. Now, one of the criticisms was, at that time, the high-performance director was in Melbourne. Where is the high-performance director now? They're still in Melbourne. So you pay for these recommendations and a whole investigation into what is wrong with the organisation, and you don't change it. Mm. I mean, there's, a, there's another yeah. bit if you go through that, and it says uh, under Section 15 that, the, uh, that a team psychologist be appointed, preferably on a full-time basis. You go through their organisational chart, there is no team psychologist. They've got wellness people, don't they? Oh, yeah, sorry. They do, they do have, um, what are they called? Uh, performance mindset, sorry, consultants. There's one for each team. And, and the national athlete. Oh, no, that's pathways. So. Yeah, no. Oh, well done. So, you know, what's the board doing? Because you've paid for these, you've got these things being put in place and everyone's saying this is what we're going to do and none of it's happening. Well, what the board is doing is publicly complaining about the situation that they were on the board for when it developed. Aren't they? Yes. (laughs) I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So there's board members who are whinging about the situation as it currently stands and they were board members at the time that these situations developed. Absolutely. Congratulations for noticing. Yeah. You know, God. And, I mean, the other one I just wanted to touch on is, again, the current situation with, you know, the A-Leagues. And I, I just cannot understand, which I think I'm with many, many football fans, how they've managed to blow $120 million in what is essentially about 18 months. And and I think people, and I know this is where we've got a problem because the A-League uh, is now owned by the owners of the franchises. But somebody needs to go in there and say, where has this money gone? And, and if you are a member of a supporters club, to me, you have the right as supporters who invest in your club to actually go now and say, we want to know where that money has gone. And especially the $40 million that they spent on this Keep Up uh, website and app. I mean, it is incredible. I spoke to a digital marketing expert who's involved in that space, and they were telling me that to have a website that speaks, it translates into five languages, you can bring that in for under $5 million. So $40 million and they actually said, I'm staggered. Like, what did they spend it on? Someone needs to ask the money because it sounds like there is something very strange going on. Okay, on that note, so the owners own the ALM. The owners of the individual clubs own the ALM. Correct, yeah. Right? So they've spent $140 million, $120 million. No one knows the official figure. It's, it's, it's over If you read million. the reports that have been out there, it's a, yeah, 120 to $140 is the figure that's being thrown around. So I have can, seen in one report they said $160 million, but You can safely say it's over $100 million. Yeah. So don't worry about where they've spent it. Where did the money come from for a second? Uh, that was part... Is it the owner's money? Did they all just pile no, the whole... No, it was part of the broadcast deal that they did okay. um, with the American company, who I forget, Paramount. that were linked in with Paramount. But there's oh, okay. an, And there was another company putting in some money, Silver... I keep wanting to say Silver Chain, but it's not Silver Chain, but I, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. So that, that's, that money spent is fully covered by that broadcast deal? I, well, the broadcast deal... Would you be paying $100 million to broadcast the Well, no, the, the, the five-year deal for the broadcast was worth $200 million. Okay, so it's uh, five uh, years. And we're about two years in or whatever. Okay, so it's nowhere near that $100 million that they've spent in that period of time. Well, they shouldn't have, but by all accounts... And, I mean, to be honest, you look at the broadcast... Any government money in there? 
I don't know that. But the, the broadcast, but the broadcast at the moment is killing the game. I mean, no one's subscribing to Paramount. There was a clause within the Paramount deal that if the FA who did the deal initially, before they separated the A-Leagues from Football Australia, uh, that if they didn't get enough subscribers to Paramount on the back of football, because football has said, we've got all these people that follow the game, they will subscribe because they want to watch the A-League, and they didn't meet that target. So my understanding, and again... Uh, I don't know the exact figure, but I believe that is a six-figure sum that they've had to pay back okay. to Paramount. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I think one of the big mistakes they made is ALM and ALW. Oh, 100%. I mean, as a marketing thing. It, it just, no one cares. No one knows. When it was the FFA... Well, it was A-League and it was the W-League, and I think people knew the, W was women, A was, yeah, the A-League, oh, yeah, people, Australia yeah, League for uh, men. I just... And maybe they were looking for something like an NRL or AFL or NFL or NBA. They're looking for something... But it hasn't caught. Yeah, it no. hasn't caught on. No, not at all. No, 100%. But well, I just get so frustrated, though, because I just think the, the quality of the management we have in sport is just not there across the board in that these people want positions on the boards and the board is there to supervise to make sure that things are run properly so that you get the best outcomes. But as you can clearly see from those two examples, the board members are not hands-on enough and they are not getting the information from the people that are running the sport clearly to be able to make the right decisions or to actually make sure that they're going down the right path. And so are they culpable? I think they are. Here's a question. Who are the top ten Australian sports administrators? And I'm not talking in Australian sport, across the globe. Who are the top ten Australian sports administrators and where are they? Most of them wouldn't be in this country. No. Uh, look, I can't think of any before. I mean, there were ones who were had great uh, profiles, like John O'Neill, who, I've got to be honest, I think some of the problems that the A-League is suffering now are the result of his time as the CEO of Football Federation of Australia. Rugby David, says hello. Yeah. <laughs> who? Rugby says yeah. hello. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, David Gallup was one, again, who was heralded, but he was... He uh, did a good job previously. With NRL, I think yeah. he did, but he was useless at football. He was... Incredibly weak. And I mean, I know Volandis gets a lot of rubbish from a lot of NFL, NRL people, but that sport's going from strength to strength. I think when they look back in retrospect, they'll probably go, Volandis was not too bad for the sport. But I think the, the big thing is, do we really even need to know these people? Again, years ago, I think you didn't really know who the heads of these sport were because they just got on with it. Now they've become big personalities as well, and it's all about self-promotion for them. Uh, to move on to the next gig. It's interesting if you compare them to American sports administrators because you've got your Gladells and who's the guy that runs baseball? I can't remember his name. And they have the, the commissions and whatever. Yeah. But those blokes, essentially, their job is to stand at the top of the pile and deflect all the rubbish that gets thrown at them. And they do a brilliant job. Yeah, and make hard it. decisions. Let's be fair. Oh, yeah. Those guys in America, they've had some real doozies of situations. Yep. But they come out, they hit it hard, they make a decision quickly. That's another thing. And they react and they go, this is it, bang, done, move on. Well, I get the feeling a lot of Australian sports administrators just dodge as much as they... They don't put a suit of armour on and buckle in. No. And that's not the way that they do it at all. Yeah, I think in the last... Again, we're talking 19 years. I think we've seen the the strength of our leaders diminish greatly. And part of it, I think, is because, you know, the NFL is an interesting case because they are remaining true to their roots and their origin, and they protect that like nothing on earth. Whereas your modern sports administrator in this country, you know, they're sort of almost like they're along for the ride, and they don't care. I think, I think looking at it, and again, is there's now a disconnect a between one. the administrators in, in the sports here, and they don't want to talk, they don't want to talk to the people who are, you know, grassroots, playing at amateur level, or any of that. They don't engage them to hear their opinions, their views, and why they're not supporting the higher levels. And, and I mean, a prime example of that is, I remember I tried to get an interview with David Gallup 
No, doesn't do one-on-one interviews. You're the CEO of Football Australia and you don't do one-on-one. I think he did one with Simon Hill on Fox or something once. But again, it was so contrived, it was ridiculous. And and then you even get the CEOs of state bodies that we've tried to get on the show in the last 19 years would not come on and and talk about issues that were there. And I think these, uh, you know, the one thing I really hate in sport is commercial inconfidence. Is that right, mate? Commercial inconfidence. We are the stakeholders. You owe us to be honest and open about everything to do with it. It's not your little secret party. Well, you, you know I had that. I fronted the CEO of Football Australia, or Football Federation of Australia as it was then, on three occasions and asked them about a sponsorship deal which involved one of their board members. And I was told commercial incompetence. I said, it cannot be when that person is on your board and they have a sponsorship deal with sections of the game. You cannot have confidentiality on that. And I actually got physically manhandled by their media manager on one occasion and told to stop asking that question. But to me, those are questions that need to be asked. And being your average media manager, you'll probably look at this guy going, you do not want to start this, buddy. (laughs) I didn't want a criminal record, you know. (laughs) But we we were talking before about the NFL. I mentioned the Super Bowl when we were chatting before the thing. And they they maintain and have maintained their connection to the grassroots, to their supporters, a number of ways. And we talked about their television deals. They don't do pay TV. We have to watch it on pay TV here, but to their constituent audience, it's free-to-air stuff, mate. The television networks go bananas over getting the rights to run. It's a really good case study to look at, and I've read a lot about exactly that format, but we haven't got time to talk about it now. And the jerseys. There's no sponsorship on the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl jersey. Yep, but their merchandising is fantastic. They, they've got advertising everywhere else but on their jersey because the jersey is sacrosanct. And that's the, the supporters understand that. Everybody understands it. Did you see that uh, one of your favourite international bodies, the International Hockey Federation, now has merchandise for sale? Do they? Yeah, I'm not sure how many people are buying it, but... Is that the job of an international federation, to sell merchandise? Well, you know, I get why they have shirts with FIH on them for officials and, you know, people, oh, look, I got this because I was at so-and-so. I get that idea of it, but just to selling it, doesn't that demean the the whole fact that these shirts are special? Suddenly any market can buy them. They don't mean anything. Ah, well. Hi, I'm Josie Jan from West Coast Fever, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Well, it's now time for our special guest, and as I mentioned, she comes from Western Australia, and uh, I've been trying to get her on this show for a very, very long time, but she is a, a women's football coach and was a remarkable athlete in her younger days, and it's with great pleasure we welcome Nicola Williams. Nicola Williams, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, I must admit, I've been trying to track you down for so long. I've wanted to speak to you because, to me, you've always been a bit of a trailblazer, but you've always kind of put hid your light under a bushel, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I guess football's a bit like that. Well, in this sport, you've got to move where it is and, and try out new pathways, new avenues, and, and try to stay in the game. If, if we go back to the very beginning, I mean, when you were playing sport and you were a young teenager, you were a remarkably talented athlete by the sounds of things mm-hmm. because you played for the state at hockey, volleyball, tennis, and football. I mean, was there mm-hmm. one that you loved? Like, was football your true love, or was it just, you know, you just love playing anything? Yeah, I love playing and thinking it was like that growing up and, and coming to Australia from England just really brought, broadened that availability to play a lot more sports all through the year, indoors, outdoors. Um, but I think I preferred football the most, but I probably was the least talented in football out of all the other sports. <laughs> probably not a wise choice, but yeah, the passionate one. I mean, I'm thinking then, is that why you looked at quite an early age to go into coaching or, or was that just something you also, because you love the sport, you were interested in that side? No, 
I guess the early age in coaching was because I I went to university early, so I graduated quite young. So I was already teaching and had sort of those qualities to instruct, lead, coach, um, you know, help others to improve, etc. It was already instilled sort of in what I was doing at a young age. Um, I was 20, 21 when I came out of uni and started to teach. Um, so along with that, I lined, you know, being interested in football, some of the coaching units, and um, and I think it was just because there was a lack of coaches, a lack of um, also to play in Western Australia in Perth. There wasn't really a team where you could then play for a professional team. So I was looking just more into coaching because I wanted to get into professional football whether I was playing or, or coaching. Yeah, you mentioned going to university. I mean, you were 16 when you got a scholarship into the University of Western Australia. But I mean, I, I think you started sports science, but then did you switch to teaching? Is that right? Yeah, no, I finished my degree in sports science and then I did a graduate diploma in education the year afterwards. So you could do that for your fourth year. And you could choose rehab into different areas. But, yeah, I just went into teaching because my scholarship was for teaching at that time. But I liked it. It was where I wanted to go. All my teachers said, don't do it. And uh, I did it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way it should be. Always ignore them when you're young, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you mentioned there that there was no professional football for women at that time. I mean, that the Western Waves was probably one of the first sort of teams yeah. where WA or Western Australia had a team in a national competition. And that was really exciting. But it was, of course, at the end of the Soccer Australia reign, really, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. So there was that sort of period of takeover. It was brilliant because for those two years we travelled, we competed with the other states. We never got to do that before. Um, and so we could really be on par with what it was like and what it would be like being part of the, well, the league, um, the A-League that it came. But we knew that there would be a number of years until that was established with the changeover, with all the changes. And I thought, well, I was probably about 24, 25. And, and then people are thinking, you've got to stop football by 30. I thought, well, I haven't got long left. If it takes a couple of years to get going, you know, I'm going to be really old when I... When, when it comes around, in fact, I could have actually played. But anyway, I've made that transition. And, you know, now we know that actually female athletes around 30, they're at their peak, they're at their prime. They're, they've got a lot of experience and keep, keep going into the early 30s quite simply. Yeah, I mean, and, and the great thing was when that came around and people, I think, forget this, that, you know, the, the W League started and you were the first Perth Glory women's coach. And a lot yeah. of people seem to forget that because, yeah. you know, we've had a lot of male coaches in the women's game. And, you know, you were a trailblazer at that time. Did you appreciate that at the time or not? Yeah, yes and no. I really enjoyed the opportunity. I mean, it was it was that. It was basically Football West put on the team. It wasn't part of Perth Glory then. It was the first year. Um, they really didn't have anyone to coach. It was almost like, do you want to be a player coach? Do you want to put your hand up? You know, they were sort of doing your BA license. Alistair Edwards was around, but he was also had other, other, um, work on at the time and with the young Matildas. So really he couldn't commit to both. And he said, look, I'll support you and, and you just do that. So it was good, but it was a shame that it was short lived because I was actually towards the end of that season getting a flow in the rhythm. Well, we had got some good results and um, wanted to continue, but then it changed to, to waste. And so everything changed then for a period while it was in transition. Yeah, was it, I mean, I've got to mention, because I think you finished fourth on the ladder in that first year, which was a heck of an achievement, really, when you look at it. Yeah, yeah. Look, we were down the bottom to start off with. The second part of the season, we were in the top four, but we didn't finish fourth. I think we finished like six or fifth or six or something in a nineteen. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really good because, I mean, we based that year, Tom Samani had said, you know, for all the teams, we want to balance out where some of the Matildas go. And number one, you've got to go home. So I was lucky to be able to get Lisa Devana and Colette McCullum. They were our two Matildas, but then, you know, the Sydney teams and, and Brisbane, they were just stacked with Matildas. So that was really tough for us to compete against. However, we, you know, we did, we did really well. It was the upcoming year of Sam Kerr, the Ella Mastro Antonio, the Mariana Tavain. So we had a good number of players that were making their mark on international football as well. Yeah, certainly were. Now, I mean, the other thing you had when you were doing that, it was sort of like, a, a, I suppose, a scholarship type arrangement, wasn't it, where the FA allowed you to go and learn from other coaches overseas. How important was that in your development? Yeah, really, really good, because I'd never seen a female coach. I'd always had male coaches in most of my sports. But being a, a sports teacher, there was a lot of female teachers. There was a lot of female um, coaches in netball, hockey, and I'd sort of worked across with them on a number of um, sort of um, training courses. 
but never really got to spend a week or know about women's football coaches. So, yeah, that allowed me to travel over to America, met Pia Sunderhag, had a look at the very top number one in the world, the USA national team. They were in camp. So stayed with them for, for a week, and then I moved to Chicago Red Stars, where Emma Hayes was actually coaching, and her assistant was female, Denise Reddy. They're both now at Chelsea or moving on, as we know. Um, and so that really then I went, oh, wow, actually, you know, there are females that coach this sport that do really well at the top of the game. And, yeah, definitely it's one I want to be. Did they sort of give you any insight into the challenges at that stage of being a woman and trying to break through that glass ceiling and, and make it in a in the women's game, but in a domain where the men were still dominant? No, I, I guess I guess not. I guess I probably felt it when we came into that transition. So I came back from that trip, I had all this training, and then, I, you know, Football West changed the, the team or the Perth Glory women's team over to Waste. And, and then I sort of felt it there because there was three candidates that applied for that job. Two were female, one was male. And, and the two female coaches actually had a lot more experience. They had a lot more um even coaching qualifications, working with women's teams, development, etc. And neither of the two got the job. And and so from there I went, hang on, there's something not quite right here and, and sort of, you know, continue to face that and you and you still do now. But I think the biggest thing that someone like Emma Hayes told me was just always always help help um, you know, I'm helping you, but you you have to think about when you're in my position, you've got to help other women to get through as well. So, you know, she was very mindful of that and, and really gave her time to do it. So She's been good. Yeah, it's like that pass it on, isn't it? You know, make sure yeah. you do that. I mean, you, you then got involved with the Australian women's youth teams. Again, was that a great thing for your development as a coach? Because as we all know and we heard yourself, you know, a lot of young players don't take advice when it's given. <laughs> No, they don't. No, it's, a, it's another ball game. So luckily, yeah, Football Australia kept me under their umbrella and, and saw that obviously, you know, that I had some qualities to become a future, you know, really good female coach. And Tom Samani always had his door open to come into camps to come and be part of his um, Matildas. But then, yeah, I got the opportunity through going through my A licenses and meet, meeting other coaches to be part of the young Matildas set up and under 17s and under 13s and under 14s and and really that's, yeah, it, it's, um, you get to work with the best in Australia, you get to go around, you get to select, you get used to also talent ID, um, working, networking, because then we had a group of what we called MTC coaches or Waste Co- um, Institute of Sport coaches. So you really then, it wasn't more about, you know, beating each other on the, on the league or in the, in the cups and, and, um, you know, at Coffs Harbour and the challenges. It was more about networking and working with them and their best athletes and then coming into camp. And getting the best out of it. It's just, you know, that Australia's demographics is difficult because we could only get together certain periods with the budget that we had to then prepare for tournaments where you're playing against Asian teams like Japan, Korea, China, where they're in full-time camps pretty much all the time. So, you know, that's the difficulty that we had as a junior teams in, in, in sort of Asia competing. There's a lot of argument today that we're, Getting having junior teams at far too young an age, you know, like mm. as we mentioned, they're under 13s, under 14s at national level. I mean, do you think that that sometimes there is the risk that you're going to get burnout with a lot of these players by the time they hit 16, 17, or, or do you think there is a place for it in terms of their development? No, not not really burnout. But in terms of selection, it's difficult. You know, there's so much that changes within just the body, let alone, you know, your technical ability and tactical understanding at that age from 13 all the way through, you know, to 18, 19. So I think that's where it should sit within the the, um, the professional teams like it does in Europe. So Europe teams here, whether whichever club or when I was working in Italy with Milan, they start at under five girls and they go all the way through. So that in Milan, they're doing that. In Inter, they're doing that. In Rome, they're doing that. In Lazio, et cetera, all the way through. So Therefore, when they come into under 17, when there is an actual official tournaments for them or the under 16 sort of age, then they're being selected there. They go around those centres and they're all, they've all been developed. So yeah, it's very important and crucial to have that pathway and to develop female players, but not on a national, leaving it to the national body to run those group, age groups to cover, you know, one team for the whole country. It's very difficult. Whereas if the clubs take that on board, there's a lot more players, a lot more um, availability for them to go into an academy and develop. And then from there, as they get older, they can get selected. 
Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think being in a club setup as well, you learn things that you don't learn elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, your career again, you mentioned there being in Italy with Milan and Lazio. It's, it's been an interesting career if you look at it. <laughs> Because you've been in in Italy, you've also obviously coached in Trinidad and Tobago, and also Papua New Guinea. So I'm thinking, yeah. from Italy to Papua New Guinea must have been a real cultural change and a real challenge. Yeah, yeah, all of it is. Even going to Trinidad was very culturally different. Everywhere's, I mean, Italy as well. Coming back to England now, coaching here, it's interesting because yeah, you, the the way things are set up, the way things are run, even to you know, what your day looks like, when do you do gym or what days do you have off? It's all very different. Um, but also the, the aspirations of the country or the team, that never changes. Like what you find all the time is that players just, they want to know more, they want to learn, they want to please you, they want to connect with you, they want to, you know, for your assurances as well. So wherever you go, it's always a matter of, I mean, with Trinidad, we we're able to help them to get a full-time salary, to get paid to do their job as players. I mean, that was unheard of. So just by having a full-time program, our coaches came to live there, work with the team like it was a club team, um, just gave them so much more hope, so much more um, meaning also for their lives. They knew they had that routine. They knew they had that salary. They knew that they could provide also for their fam- you know, families, but also for themselves outside of football. Um, going to Papua New Guinea was the opposite. You know, some some of the players there, uh, it was you know their husbands weren't happy that they were playing football and they the salary was so low and it was almost like don't go to that time or don't get selected because you know we need you to look after your kids and things like that. <laughs> Who's going to do that while you're away? Because that was uh, that was a pretty big ask for them. They they were out of we we had the camps in New Zealand, we had camps in Australia. And then we had the tournament at the end in New Zealand, the qualifiers. So they were away from home for, a, you know, nearly th- three months in a, in a row that we had to prepare them. Um, again, you know, the, the, the opposite side is sad to see that they're short-term projects often. You know, there'll be a new president or someone in charge. They'll have some FIFA funding. They'll put it all into the team for a short period. And then whether it's successful or not, it kind of disappears. And then they wait again for another three or four years and might try again. And I guess what working in club football, you can see actually you now the sustainable model that they want to improve each year, that they want to buy more players or better players to try and develop their own brand, their own culture, their own success to get into Champions League, to be noticed on the world scale. So stage. So, yeah, it's all very different, but it's, yeah, it's interesting work and it's, it's nice to travel, to go around and meet people and, and see what it's like. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I found, again, when I travelled through Africa when I made a documentary was in some parts of Africa, as you touched on there in Papua New Guinea, the husbands or the family really didn't want the young girl or the wife or the sister to play football. I mean, yeah. you would get the impression, or I get the impression now that certainly in Europe, it is a career for women and families are far more accepting. Hopefully, that's going to filter across the world at some stage. But those are cultural issues that the game has to overcome, isn't it? Yeah, exactly right. And I, I think, you know, people, they do try and they send out, you know, they have different projects that they work on and funding and, and support that they do try to do. So hopefully, hopefully it will become global and more global, more competitive. Well, of course, one thing I was going to ask you as well, because you actually work alongside your wife, which a lot of people might say that's a difficult situation going to work every day and then going home, taking your work home, especially in a highly charged uh, environment like a football club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess when we were back in Australia and we were working in the academy, that sort of gave us that, okay, is, will this work? Will it be okay? You know, and also I had to do my training because my AFC license wasn't like a European license and, and all the information and tactical information that there is available in, in Europe and on those courses that were different. But, um, you know, I guess once I got through that and we started then out in you know, working in, in Italy and in Trinidad and, and now here in England, it's a matter of, yeah, we just, we support it. We have different personality. We have different roles and objectives. We actually quite complement each other. Um, you know, and there's that funny humor banter within the team and things like that. So no, I think it, it works really well. Sure. Yeah. There's challenges because yeah, you've got to make sure, you know, when, when it's time to switch off or, you know, you can't start the day every day with the first thing that you say to each other about work. You know, you have to first arrive your coffee, get solid for the day and then yeah, you're into it. But. And on that hand, you know, you have a lot of meetings, a lot of catch up, you're driving, you've already discussed 
you know, training or what you're going to do or reflected quite, you know, quickly on, on, on what you're going to do, yeah, for the day or how it went, et cetera. So, yeah, I guess we, yeah, work gets a benefit because we work 24-7 and, and for us is more our suffering personally that, yeah, you've got to make sure that you balance it out and get your days where you try and switch off. But, yeah, like you said, it's challenging, but it works well. Yeah, I think I think that we work well together and we'll, we'll see how we go this season. Well, that's good. Yeah, you're with the London City Lionesses, which was, I think, connected with Millwall previously. I mean, how are you finding it and are you enjoying it is the main thing. Yeah, oh, it's been really good. It's It's been a challenging season. It's been an interesting season because, yeah, we, we, there's been a very successful team for a number of years. And unfortunately, at the beginning of this season, there weren't many players left over. Most had actually joined other teams and other um, clubs. So, also against us now in the championship. So unfortunately, we've had to build the team from zero, which is good and bad because you can bring in players that you want, but at the same time, it's a competitive market because you know play, everybody wants the, the best players that are available to come and play in the championship. Um, so it's taken some time to rebuild. It's taken time to sort of get that continuity. And um, we have a very um, small squad, so each week we sort of lost players with injury or suspension, etc. That's affected the, the group going forwards. But We've had the Christmas break. We've come back. We've had some great results in the in the cup, the FA Cup round. The team's never gone into the fifth round. Um, we've got through the Conti Cup, which they've never gone through that into the quarterfinals. Um, but it means that next week we face Arsenal and we face Liverpool. So it's going to be a busy week next week. And uh, maybe those Italian tactics of uh, Catenaccio or, <laughs> or what do they English say, part the bus might come in handy. We'll, we'll see how we're going to tactically play that. But yeah, it's, it's been been nice to see us progress in those stages. Well, it'd be amazing if you could get a result in those. It would really lift the, the sort of team morale, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And just finally, before I let you go, because I know you're very busy and you've got to get down to training, is do you ever sort of look at it now? I mean, I'm sure you've enjoyed the path your career's had, but it's it's kind of sad that there's nothing for you here in Australia, or do you feel there's still plenty of time for you to come back here and uh, we can sort of reap the benefits of all you've learned. Yeah. No, Australia is definitely a home. I definitely want to coach there and be part of, uh, you know, the league. And I think something I've been waiting for is for it to be full-time, to be a full-time league, to have that same competitive feel that everywhere else does in the world, especially in Europe, um, that the calendar's, you know, 24-7. It's not that you play the league for a few months and they go back into, you know, their normal state league um, and they lose that preparation, that on that continuity of full-time training. I mean, to develop an athlete, you need to be training five, six times a week um, with the gym, full-time program, looking at the nutrition, your wellness, um, sleep patterns, uh, menstrual cycles, etc. And it's something that's probably not yet provided in Australia. So it's difficult to yeah, to come and work in, in a league that doesn't have a, a full home and away competition even. It, it's an unbalanced league. You, you can play somebody twice and some of the teams you only ever play once and then it's a finals round. So, yeah, that's something that I've never been able to accept. And, and so hopefully with the changes with the World Cup that's been and now I know that even this year it's expanded, you know, it's, it's going to improve. And then for sure it's going to be one of the top leagues in the world and definitely want to come back and work there. Well, Nicola, thanks so much for your time. I'm so glad we got to speak because I've always thought of you as a real trailblazer for women's football here in Australia. So I wanted to have a chat with you and uh, I really am grateful for you giving up your time. And we'll be watching to see how the Lionesses go for the rest of the season. Right. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks for inviting me. It's always good to catch up with you. It's been a long time. So, yeah, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Hello, my name is Joe Cortez, international boxing referee from Las Vegas, Nevada, the boxing capital of the world. Listen to Not the Footy Show, it's a knockout. Check it out. Well, that was Nicola Williams, who I mentioned in that interview was coaching London City Lionesses. Now, we had a slight delay on recording this show because John wasn't well and had to go into hospital for an operation. And I have to tell you, since we recorded that, her and her partner, Caroline Marachi, have been sacked as uh, London City Lionesses coaches, which is a great shame for them. And I can tell you that they also, the team, played in the FAWSL Cup 
and went down 4-0 since their sacking. So uh, had they been there, I'd like to think they would have done a little bit better against Arsenal. But uh, I think, John, again, it's been an interesting ride for her. And it sort of shows how it, it was interesting how she was saying that she doesn't really want to come back to Australia and coach in the Australian women's A-League uh, because the season doesn't run long enough. She wants to be involved in a, you know, we've got a league that only lasts roughly six months or whatever. It's just not long enough to sustain. And even within that six months, they don't play an extraordinary number of games. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I, I look, I remember her when she was first involved with NTC and then the Perth Glory women, and I think she's a very good coach. That's my personal opinion, having watched her take sessions. And when you think, what's that old line about coaching? You're either waiting to be sacked or you're sacked. Well, you're not a good coach until you have been sacked, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Yeah. But let's forget the coaching bit for a second. Just to, as a player, a sports person, she's got a remarkable record. Oh, that's, yeah. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it was. I mean, to play state hockey, volleyball, football and tennis is remarkable. And then she stuck with the football because she liked it the most, but then realised she probably wasn't going to go beyond. But she did play in the national competition. So, again, you've played at the highest level in Australia, yep. and, and that's nothing to be sneezed at. No, she's a very talented woman, that's for sure. Yeah, very much so. Anyway, what are you going to talk about now? Oh, my God. Well, we covered some of it already. What do... Oh... Go back to the NFL for a minute, because oh, I'm not, Yeah, I, I do like the NFL. Like, I, uh, well, you American had some time living in America. When growing I was a up. kid, and I was so pleased to see the bloke that started the um, the little walk with the Super Bowl trophy at the end was a fella by the name of Larry Zonka. What now, a name! Oh yeah, L- let me show you something. This That's is really a, good for a podcast, John. This is <laughs> this is a book that I bought. In 1974, when I was playing in America, living in America, and it's called Greasy Zonka, the Miami Dolphins one-two punch. There you go. And he was been. Oh, I've I've loved Larry Zonka for for years and years, and to see him walking up the little alleyway of fame, holding the trophy, was fabulous. But anyway, is there any other sport in the world that invests so much? in one position on the field, and by that I mean quarterback. Now, I thought Patrick Mahomes wins the MVP for the Super Bowl yep. this year, and I thought, you know what? He's played nine minutes of good football. Nine minutes. Why is he getting that award? There, I, there were two players, I thought, were better across the four quarters of the game. And it's... Uh, it, is, is there anybody, any other sport that puts so much on the quarterback? Because the quarterback can only have a good game. If those in front of him do their job. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, it's funny because uh, I worked many, many years ago with Jim Palmer, who was a pitcher for the Baltimore Orioles. Okay. And they won the World Series baseball. And I think from memory, when they first won it, he was 21 years of age. Wow. And I was working with him and it was, it was fascinating because I was only early twenties then. And he goes, you could write off the next three years of my career. He goes, they were a nightmare because he goes, I thought that I was the best there was. And he goes, because I pitched to win a world series. And he goes, and I failed to realize that I needed everyone on my team to do their job for me to be successful. So it's actually backing up exactly what you're saying in a slightly different sport. I mean, I don't, I'm not sledging Mahomes. No, I know I, you're not. By any stretch, you know, he's a very good player. And I remember being on this podcast saying, uh, the first time they won a Super Bowl, yeah. going, this guy is, def- you know, amazing. It'd be interesting but, to see how many non-quarterbacks have won the MVP. Oh, they, they do. I think William Perry did years ago, didn't he? I don't know if, if the... Um, didn't he? I'm not sure William Perry did, but certainly there have been, you know, running backs and... Oh, yeah, there were a few running backs. There's not many of the defensive ends or... I don't think so, but there have been defenders that have won MVPs and Super Bowls. I mean, there there would be those who watch that game who are far more afraid with it than I am that would have probably said, you know what, Purdy, the other quarterback, actually had a better overall game, but they didn't win. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's and what would be interesting is how many most valuable players were on the losing side, because yeah. we do see that in Australian sport. Quite well, maybe often. that can be your homework for the next show. Oh, okay. 
Or if you want, I'll look it up. No, we'll, we'll sort that out. I can. I think the thing, the thing I find interesting, John, as well, is, and I've been reading a lot of books lately for, because I'm researching for my next documentary about the 1960s and sport in America in the 60s leading up to the protests at the Mexico Olympic Games. And it's very interesting if you look. So, for example, I mean, in the Super Bowl era, era 1968 was actually the first time. 67, wasn't it? Yeah, but 1968 was the first yep. time any team used a black quarterback. Yeah. And that was the Marlon Briscoe at the Denver Broncos. But then if you look, and I mean, there haven't been that many. There's been more in recent times, but it took till 2003 for a black quarterback to win the MVP that you're talking about. That's and that was, that was Tennessee Titans, oh, Steve okay. McNair. And, of course, uh, Lamar Jackson won it last year for the Baltimore Ravens. Yeah. So there's only been six, I think, uh, black quarterbacks win the MVP. But, again, they were restricted from playing for so long. And the sad thing was when you read this stuff back in the 60s, there was this myth that they weren't smart enough to play that <laughs> yeah. position. Yeah. And you just go, how the hell did you reach that conclusion? Yeah. And, um, and you know what? That might be true in the sense that um, they, were, they were never schooled into being but Opportunity. It comes down to opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you could look around the league and say, well, there's actually no guy here that actually understands and knows how to play that position because they've never been taught how to play that well, position. Or they've never been allowed to play that yeah, position. Exactly. And, that, and that's the problem you have. And that's where you have to, when people talk about equality, it's not about having people play. It's giving equal opportunity to people to play in every position and find out which is the best position and, for them. And uh, that, does, that doesn't start at the elite level. That, oh, no, 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 that that's a junior only, level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That can Absolutely. only start way down. Um, oh, I was telling you this earlier too. I I recently was watching a guy called Bill Maher. Um, make, make him what you will. He can be pretty funny at times. But he was talking about, you know, meritocracy and Nepo babies. It's a big thing in America, you know, blah, blah. And he... he he made the point that probably the only place in the world that is truly a meritocracy now is sport. And because, you know, you, you might get your foot in, your do- in the door because of who your daddy and your mummy was, but uh, you're not going to be gifted anything just because your dad was yep. so-and-so or your mum was so-and-so. Uh, You've got to perform. You have to. You, it, th- there's... That's the bottom line, is performance. Would it be the same? I'm, I'm thinking not so much uh, music in terms of recorded music, but orchestral music, I would think, would be, again, you've got to be the best to get into the orchestra. They're not going to put some numpty on the cello section if they can't play well. Oh, yeah, and you could, you could say it in the sense that, uh, you know... Madonna's kids aren't just going to be handed a record. No, they might be handed the record contract, but that's about it. Their success is based on how how good they are. Yeah. Although I dare say any any child Taylor Swift may happen to have it in the future, will have a huge leg up in that department. She does have long legs. She does. And look, there are cases. El Elton John could put out a record of him farting. <laughs> And it would sell. You know what yeah. I mean? Candle and the wind. Yeah, exactly. That's the best joke you've cracked on this show. But 550 episodes to get to this It's taken me that long. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, but, no, and no. It, but it's interesting. You, you look at that and you think, how many are there where there are the children of performers like that? I mean, Marty Wilde, of course, was a singer in the 50s, yeah. and Kim Wilde was actually the backing singer for her brother's band. And I think it was Mickey Most um, was listening to them to see if they were going to get a recording deal. And he went to the sun. He went, no, 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 no. She's got to come to the front and sing. She's better than you. Being Paul McCartney's brother didn't help Mike in the end. Yeah. It, 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 but I, Sometimes it is a burden being the child of somebody. like I think in most cases, I mean, there's enough books written about that. Yeah, and... Is it still true of sport that uh, that that is the case? How long will that remain true of sport? I mean, we know of situations, especially in younger age groups, where you know, 
Well, he, daddy's worth this much, and that guy's dad fixes brakes. So, well, here's an argument though against Bill Maher because we've got now this magnificent thing that came into the being called sports science, where now if you look, they try and make athletes into players. So they check their VO max and all of this, and go, "You're you're actually going to be best at this. You're going to be best at this." And then they try to upskill them in the skills of the game, and you see some actually incredibly talented players miss out because they don't necessarily have the physical attributes or the respiratory excellence that's required according to the scientists. And I think that's sometimes a great shame because I've seen players miss out just because of that when they've been better players than those who are selected. And perhaps we get it more, more exposed in this country to the idea that that's actually rubbish through things like the sport we don't talk about draft. So you see guys that get overlooked for years and have to go back down to the second level and, and they're always, cons- you know, from, oh, no, too slow or too short or too tall or whatever it may be. And it's through their perseverance and dedication that they break down that barrier. And people, all, you know, they, they get drafted and they perform at a level and it goes, oh, wow, isn't this amazing? Gee, never thought this would happen. And it actually disproves all of that other rubbish that, that we get thrust down our throats. I mean, how can you tell about a 14-year-old kid, you really? It's well, Arsene made Wenger, up. Arsene Wenger, the former Arsenal coach, offered a million to anyone who could guarantee him a kid at 13 would go on and play in the Premier League or pl- and play for his country. Yes, because exactly. you just can't. In fact, when you look at the statistics between representative sport, uh, uh, 13s, 15s, 18s, whatever... Under 21s. How many people that play in a national under 21 team play for the national team? Yeah, it's getting less. Yeah, it is. Because also, again, you know, especially when there's juniors, people like me, you don't grow very much. And it's not that I was ever tall, but anyway. <laughs> but uh, we should probably wrap up this 550th show. But before we do, John, I just remembered oh. someone who also came on and co-hosted with us um, that I forgot about, and I apologise profusely, but as we were talking, it just popped in my head. Cody Blay, oh, who yeah. now is, of course, Cody Paris. Um, so, yeah, she was a big is part of... Joel Paris? Yes. The cricketer. Yeah. Oh, well her, her husband is her husband because she's the biggest star because she was on Not the Footy Show. But yeah, she was uh, a very big part of it early on. So thanks again, Cody. We didn't forget you. Congratulations, by the way. Well done. 5.50. Some fiddler on the pitch. They think it's all over. We get See ya. We'll be back next week.